Lord, we love you. Thank you for being here tonight. Thank you for helping me to be able to say and to present what you want said and presented, Lord. Help everyone to get a deeper understanding of uh, of you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. So, um, Pastor John did not finish up the chapter that he was working on. Uh, but he wanted me to do 15 and 16 and finish up the book of 1 Corinthians. And then when he get back, he would finish up wherever he was in 12 or 13 and 14, wherever, wherever he ended up. So we're going to jump back and forth the next couple of weeks. And I don't do things the same way he does. He doesn't do things the way I do. So we'll... We'll see how it works out, great? So, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the longest chapter of any New Testament epistle. Epistle. And uh, it's in the longest epistle in the New Testament. So, it took me forever to get through chapter 15. Um, uh, it's labeled in my Bible anyway as the resurrection chapter. And I'm pretty sure that's probably what most of them say, because that's what the topic is for the whole chapter, basically. And Paul spends a whole lot of time on it, uh, because many in the Corinthian church there believed in the immortality of the spirit or the soul, but uh, they also held to the popular Greek idea of dualism, which uh, meant that there was a strict separation of spirit and matter. Their, uh, their idea was that spirit was good, matter or the physical world was evil and that included the human body uh so the greeks could actually think you know all these deep uh, thoughts and and philosophy and all this stuff that uh, that the greeks were known for and still live morally wicked perverse you know weird lives because they believed that the material part of life was meaningless the uh, they actually believed that the body was a prison for the soul and uh, and death actually ended up freeing the soul from that prison. So uh, so when Paul talks about a actual bodily resurrection, that would be a horrible thing to them. They uh, they were they were against it. They didn't like it. They believed in a resurrection of the spirit, but once a body's expiration date passed, that was all she wrote. They didn't have any more to do with uh, with physical anything. Uh, and, and Paul points out here that they hadn't completely thought out the implications of that particular worldview. Uh, but uh, before he could defend, you know, the uh, believer's re- resurrection, he had to remind them uh, how Christ's resurrection paved the way. <clears throat> so he starts in verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. 
Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. I'm reading from the NIV, so in case anybody's curious, I believe that's what I took all that from. Uh, Paul is reminding these people in this church what the gospel that they originally heard was. Uh, What he's saying now isn't any different than what they heard from him when he was there before. He wasn't trying to witness to them. Uh, It's the church. They're all believers, right? But uh, he's reminding them of something that they might have forgotten or or just weren't really thinking about anymore. Uh, The very thing he brought to them after he he received it from other apostles and, and, you know, all this. The, the thing was that the foundation of everything they professed was what, what they had learned in the first place. Uh, and, uh, you know, they could discuss spiritual gifts, who was a disciple of who, and all sorts of other issues. But this particular topic, the gospel, is what all that other stuff was built on. Yeah, Kelly? My. Uh, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Sure, I will. Uh, I'll, I'll I'll get to that here in just a minute. Yep. Uh, so what was what was Paul talking about here that was of first importance? He, he was talking about the gospel or the good news that what one Christ died for our sins. Two, he was buried. Three, he was resurrected. And four, a bunch of people saw him afterwards. That, that is what he's saying was, uh, was the foremost importance of, of what he's uh, talking about here. And, and Paul wasn't, uh, wasn't trying to prove that this was the case. He was laying this out just uh, as an accepted reality. This is the way it is. It's, it's not something that he has to, uh, to prove to them. This is, this is just, you know, the way things are. It was all prophetically and historically ver- verifiable. He's saying, these are the facts. This is, this is the deal right here. And, uh, and then Paul actually, uh, you know, name drops a little bit in, uh, in, in those verses. He says, uh, you know, Jesus came back and appeared to Peter and the disciples Who's going to argue with them? You know, they, they knew Jesus. They, they, they're, the, they're the pillars now. They're the ones everybody looked to. Uh, the 500, he says, most of whom are still alive. If they really wanted to, if they really wanted to argue about it, they could find eyewitnesses that saw him, and so they can't deny that, that this is the case. Uh, he mentions James, which is uh, Jesus' half-brother, who uh, didn't actually believe that he was the Christ until after the resurrection, um, and then later became the leader of the Jerusalem church. And uh, then it says uh, all the apostles, not just the 12, but the larger group um, that's uh, talked about in Acts. So uh, Paul's saying, you know, there are still eyewitnesses to the resurrection who are alive at this time. It's just common knowledge. It's not a myth that's developed over the course of, uh, of time. This is, you know, nobody's disputing this fact right now. Uh, and then, of course, Paul refers to the other witness that, uh, that they already have a close relationship. He talks about himself. He had already spent a year and a half with them, teaching, getting to know them, them getting to know him. Uh, if you can't trust your friends, who can you trust, right? Right. 
and and Kelly brought up the uh, uh, the way he referred to himself as one abnormally, some say untimely born. The Greek term there uh, basically means a miscarriage or an abortion. Um, he's saying he was like a stillborn child before his call and his conversion. He's saying he wasn't. He, he wasn't even alive. He was spiritually dead until he was miraculously given life through God's grace and that experience he had on, on the road there. And, you know, that, that imagery here kind of fits with, uh, with the whole theme of God's power uh, giving life to the dead that, uh, that he's talking about here is the resurrection. So uh, Paul continues talking about himself. He says, For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Can you say that in a Popeye voice? Is that sacrilegious? I, I won't. I just think it whenever I read it. Uh, and, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. He's saying, all this stuff, this, you know, doesn't matter who it came from. We're all saying the same thing. You believe us. This is the thing. And, and Paul considered himself the least of the apostles because, uh, uh, in some sense, all the others knew Jesus when he was doing his ministry, when he was walking on the earth. Uh, and then when he appeared to them after his resurrection, uh, you know, all but, I guess, James were, uh, were believers at that point uh, already. And, uh, you know, Paul himself was actually quite the opposite. He, uh, he ended up realizing his sorry state, you know, beforehand and understood that apart from Christ and that experience that he had, he was nothing. And, you know, that's the case for all of us, isn't it? I mean, seriously. Uh, and, you know, like Paul, though, I think uh, a lot of times we can usually see it clearer in ourselves than, than in other people. You know, I, I see my own depravity. I see my own uh, lack without him, you know, more so than I would see it in anybody else because I don't know anybody else as well, well as I know me. But uh, that's just my thought there is, uh, you know, he's saying this stuff, I... I could say the same thing about myself, you know. But then, uh, in response to Christ's grace, says that uh, Paul worked harder than all the rest, and it wasn't, you know, so that he could repay what he was given, because we can't do that, and he, uh, he knows that. Uh, but it was because he was so grateful, because he did see what he was before and, and realizes how wrong he was in it. You think? Maybe. I mean, you know, that's quite possible. I don't know. Maybe it was to play catch up, but, but he, you know. I know that what? Sure. Well, and you know, it could be a case of, uh, you know, like like Jesus said, you know, was yeah who. Who's forgiven much loves much, you know, and it, and it's a case of you know, he was one that persecuted and killed Christians for their belief because uh, he didn't he, he thought they were wrong, and then when he 
realized they were right. He realized how wrong he was, and was even you know more in love with with uh, with Christ than you know. Uh, right. Well, you know. <laughs> True. Very very A. Yeah. A plus plus. Yeah. Oh yeah, uh-huh, oh yeah. They, that's good. That still only counts as one. <laughs> oh, that's funny because I used something from the Lord of Rings in here later. So, um, Paul wraps up this section uh, reminding them that uh, this very same gospel that they heard and believed is what he and the apostles were still preaching. Nothing had changed except the Corinthians. They, they had a different idea now or a different attitude. Um, so we go on in verse 12. He says, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people to be most pitied. So, he says, if Christ's resurrection is what you originally believed, how can you say that there's no resurrection now? Because if that's the case, you silly Greek thinkers, you know, Christ wasn't raised. And if, if, if that's the case, we who preach and you who believe, we're all wasting our time, right? And that's the truth. That's, uh, that's the case. And, and Paul says, and worse yet, we're liars. You guys are still sinners. The believers that pass away are sunk, right? I mean, they, they lived what they lived for no reason at all. Uh, basically, everyone's up the creek without a paddle, if that's the case. And, and we're getting into that time where, where that's really brought into focus, uh, you know, with, uh, with um, Lent and, and, and Easter and Resurrection Sunday and all that. That's, that's the focus. All the other stuff was good, but if he just stayed in the ground... It's not really, didn't really do anything, did it? So, uh, you know, some of us, not us, but some argue that uh, even if Christianity isn't true, even if he didn't raise, uh, the Christian faith is still, you know, the best way to live. You know, it's good, it's honorable, it's uh, it's the way you should be, that, uh, you know, you wouldn't have to have any regrets if you lived a good life. Paul's kind of disagreeing here, isn't he? He says, if Christianity is only for, uh, for how you live here in this life, we're a pitiful, pathetic bunch. We're foolishly believing that it isn't true, or something that isn't true, and that can't help us. That would be a pity. Right. Right. Yeah, any anything, yeah, anything that they had uh, that they had preached, 
was was a lie if 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 that wasn't true, right? Uh, basically, there's no hope without the resurrection. That's that's just that's the case. That's the way it's laid out. That's the way you know it was presented. And and if it's not true, then none of it is, and we can just forget about it, right? But since Christ has been raised, resurrection is obviously more than just possible. It's it's essential to our faith, and that's uh, that's where the whole power of of the whole works is. You can't get away from it. Right. I, I have seen that there was a whole bunch of them there, yes. Uh-huh. Uh, yep. right. right, yeah, they didn't want anybody uh, anybody getting into it and taking his body away. And and so it was it was sealed up, it was heavily guarded, it was, uh, you know, they did everything they could to make sure that it couldn't, couldn't be gotten. Uh, and, you know, if you're making a movie... You want to pay 15 guys or you want to pay one guy to dress as a soldier, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right, exactly. He was just uh, he was just doing what he thought he needed to do to protect himself. He was he wasn't exactly an innocent bystander, but uh, he was a uh, a ignorant willing participant. So a useful idiot. Yes, very good. That's uh, that's. That, I think that that could be, uh, could be the, the case could be made for that. Yeah. So uh, continuing on in verse twenty, he says, uh, "But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn." Christ, the first fruits, then we, then he, <clears throat> sorry, then when he comes, those who belong to him, and then the end will come when the hands, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet, now, when it says that everything is put under him, it's clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Sometimes Paul drives me nuts. You know, he started with the, the whole resurrection, if this, then, if that. But he's very thorough. You know, he, he does. He just drives me batty, and I don't want to read it because he goes around and around, but he, he makes sure the entire topic is covered, and uh, theoretically, everything gets uh, explained clearly with uh, with no questions. And, you know, he says here, in fact, Jesus' resurrection was the first domino in the train that ends with the defeat of all enemies of God, including death. We have to be resurrected. Otherwise, death isn't really defeated. Uh, the whole first fruits here, he was referring to the, the type shadow thing of the Old Testament feast of the first fruits, and I'm sure Kelly knows more about this than I do. But uh, 
at the beginning of the harvest, the Israelites would bring the first sheaf of grain that they harvested, and they would bring it and they would dedicate it to the Lord, and then that, you know, assured that the rest of the harvest would follow and everything would be good and it would be fantastic. <clears throat> Is that when it is the Feast of the Tabernacles? Yeah. Right. Oh, it would. Right, right. Yeah, naturally. Jesus would fit into that category too, wouldn't he? And and you know what? Obviously, Jesus wasn't the first person raised from the dead. Uh, Elijah raised some from the dead. Uh, Jesus did it himself, you know, while he was doing his ministry. But the difference is he was the first one to be raised from the dead permanently uh, to a life that will never have death again. Those other people were raised, but they were going to have to die again at some point. And, and then Jesus' resurrection assures us, you know, that that harvest is coming, that, that our resurrection is coming as well. Uh, Paul says, you know, that Adam's sin originally brought death, and then Jesus' resurrection affords life to those who believe. You notice in there that uh, all is used several times in that little segment of verses. And that is uh, one place where a lot, of, a lot of people get the idea of universalism or the belief that everyone will end up in heaven. Everyone's going to be saved. Little problem with that theory, though, is uh, this letter is written to who? Who's, who's he talking to here? He's talking to the church at Corinth, right? He's talking to believers. His audience that he's speaking to here isn't the entire population of the known world. Uh, he's talking about believers, not all people. Context is really important, isn't it? Um, all Christians who have fallen asleep, which, which implies, doesn't it, that they'll wake up eventually. That's, that's why he doesn't say, you know, believers that are dead. He says the ones that have fallen asleep. Um, all of them will wake up, and each one will take your place in order. When, he, when he's talking about the, the order in that, in that section, that's a military term referring to rank. And uh, basically, he was describing a military parade where, where each unit comes out and each individual in that unit is in the proper place at the right time and everybody's uh, in order, basically. Uh, throughout history, you know, different Christians fall into their place in this procession. We fall into our place in that whole parade uh, at our proper time, at the, at the time that we're supposed to be. Uh, Paul quotes Psalm, uh, Psalms in verse 27, and I didn't write down where he quoted Psalms, but in verse 27 he says, uh, talks about everything being under Jesus' feet, uh, but make sure, you know, to stop them before they get carried away. I could find it, but is it eight? Yeah. I remember looking it up, but I obviously didn't type it in my notes. Uh, but, uh, you know, he doesn't want the uh, Corinthians, who obviously would never get carried away with anything, uh, to get carried away in, in their thinking 
Uh, he says, of course, the Father's not going to be under Jesus' feet. He's the one that gave Jesus his authority in the first place. Uh, and, you know, we understand, kind of, we, we understand that Jesus and God the Father, the Holy Spirit, I mean, they're all equal. You know, no one of them is above the other. Uh, but we also understand the idea of submission. Uh, we've talked about that multiple times on Sunday mornings. And I think he's talked about it in here, too, sometimes. Uh, the act of voluntarily lowering yourself to uh, to help someone raise up to a higher level or uh, or to help them accomplish what they're trying to accomplish so you know that's that's the idea where he talks about Jesus you know being in submission and and bringing everything to God the Father you know what that is right love Brian says yeah I know <laughs> I hate when that happens. Yeah. Uh, well, then, then the next verse, here comes a tricky little passage, right? Um, some scholars believe that there could be over 200 different interpretations of verse 29. Uh, more conservatively, others say it's closer to 40 or so. Either way, there's a lot of varying opinion and uh, more than a little controversy uh, over verse 29 that says, Now if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? Were the Corinthians being baptized for dead friends and relatives, hoping that they, that would get them saved? It can sound like that, can it? Mormons do that. Uh, I'm, I'm not... Do they not? Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's right. They just they just pay. That's right. Uh, you know, uh, uh, anyone that does that practice though is is probably basing it on this verse. Now, you know, what does Hebrews nine twenty seven say? It says people are destined to die once, and then after that they face the judgment. There's no mention of a chance to be baptized after you're dead, to get saved after it's over. Uh, Paul um, talks about being absent from the body is to be present with the Lord in his second letter to these same exact people that he's writing to right now. So why is he talking about baptizing for the dead here? Jack Hayford's take is what? Well, that's true. That that sums it up. It doesn't matter who's baptizing what and whose name for what. If nobody's coming back, it doesn't make any difference at all. That uh, I think that last one that uh, that he said was the one that I had found 
which made the most sense to me, uh, especially when you think about these people uh, that he's talking to. Uh, you know, the, the theory is that new believers in Corinth would uh, perhaps credit their salvation to one of the apostles who have already passed away or gone to sleep, as Paul might put it. And so, you know, when they were baptized, they would be baptized for that person. You know, someone else would do it, the, but, but they would be bad. Say, you know, it was in, as, as they were being baptized by that person, someone filling in for that person, baptizing them would be the dead that it's talking about there. Right, yeah, that was, that was earlier in this book, yep. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, you know, um, they would do this because they wanted those apostles to get a greater reward in heaven, you know, for the work that, that they had done. That's not unprecedented. Uh, many times a, a convert would be baptized by the one who led them to Christ and discipled them and what have you. Uh, We actually like doing it that way here. Uh, It's a lot more personal and and relational, uh, and and it really is an honor for for the people that are doing the baptism to, uh, you know, when you did your kids, you know, was just amazing. When I've, I've baptized a bunch of people in there, some of them have been very special, you know, and, and so it is an honor. And so, you know, in, uh, in these times, if the original person wasn't available, the baptism could be performed by one of that person's followers on his behalf, you know. Uh, baptizing for a dead apostle is just kind of carrying that process, you know, a little bit further. Um, not that the Corinthian church, again, was known for, you know, taking things a little extreme. Interesting. Right, yeah, mm-hmm, yeah. Well, and you know, something else that plays into that theory we, uh, we mentioned as well, uh, knowing this Corinthians church's uh, affinity for labeling themselves as followers of this person or that person, you know, that, that would go right along with that sort of factioning that uh, Paul had addressed earlier. Factioning, uh, for Pastor John, who's listening, is a word that I just made up like like he would do, you know. So, uh, cha-ching, one for the dictionary for me, bub. Uh, the beauty of this whole process, though, as Paul points out, is that it contradicts their belief that there wasn't any resurrection in the first place. Uh, just like uh, just like it was saying in uh, in Brian's Bible there in the notes. Uh, how would these dead apostles get credited for their baptism if they weren't getting resurrected anyway? Here's an interesting note, though, that came up when I was studying this. Paul doesn't denounce the practice. He doesn't say, stop it. That's wrong. He's, he's actually, you know, uh, using this to support his argument. And he's not saying they got to cut it out. Uh, you know, he's using the contradiction to support his, his stance. He doesn't tell them to stop. I, I don't. You know, I don't have an answer. It's just an observation. Uh, Do with it whatever you want. 
I, I see lots of things when I read the Bible that I think, huh, that's interesting. I don't know enough to put an opinion on it. It just seems interesting to me. So, yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, the same thing, though, that, uh, that you were saying, it doesn't, you know, doesn't change anything. You're, you know, you're still saved. You're, you still get baptized. Uh, I don't know. Uh, he does go on to explain, though, that uh, the reason he can serve God like he does is because he has that assurance of resurrection. You know, uh, Paul went through all sorts of horrible pain and suffering and trials and, and such during the course of his ministry. And he says if there's no, no resurrection, he would be foolish to be risking his life like this for nothing. He uh, says that starting in verse 30. It says, And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? If I face death every day, yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If this is all there is, let's live it up, right? Might as well live for the now. Hugh Hefner's right. <laughs> Hedonism, baby. Right? What are the wild beasts that he talks about there in verse 32? Any any thoughts? Obviously, I have some because I brought it up. But well, that's that's a good guess in the arena. Uh, you know, elsewhere, Paul lays out a list of you know being shipwrecked, beaten, this and that. But I don't ever rem- remember mentioning wild beasts. As a Roman citizen, he probably could not be put into the arena. Yeah. You know, wouldn't it be cool, though, to think of Paul, you know, fighting the lions and the gladiators? And, well, maybe not. You know what? That's what most uh, most uh, theories are, are leaning towards, that uh, most link these beasts with the uh, many who opposed him and the trouble he had. That, uh, yeah, look at you. Yep, and and they were trying to yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. He he mentions it later in in chapter sixteen that we'll get to theoretically, uh, but uh, you know they started a riot in Ephesus. It's talked about in Acts. Um, must have been some vehement opposition, huh? Uh, more than likely, that's uh, that's what they say that this is the beasts that he's talking about. Kind of like a room full of teenagers, right? I mean, yeah. You know where I'm coming from. Either way, you know, he's saying, why go through all that and put yourself at risk for absolutely no reason? Verse 33 says, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. Stop being fooled, he says. Uh, Remember what you know to be true and think these things through. You know, if you lay down with flogs, flogs, if you lay down with dogs, you're going to get fleas. Uh, everyone, all of us, are susceptible to the influence of, uh, of friends, of, uh, of church members who aren't necessarily, you know, living the way they ought to be. 
uh, of, of society at large. We have to be very, very, very careful whose advice and whose examples we follow. If you're in a church with, uh, you know, a bunch of materialistic, tolerant, you know, in a bad way, tolerant um, Christians, you're going to start thinking the same way that they are unless, unless you're very careful to, to guard against that. Those thoughts and attitudes can, can get in, and before you know it, you're really messed up. Try, you know... I know you probably did. Try, try growing up and basing your life on some 70s classic rock songs, huh? <sighs> some science fiction stuff that I read when I was a teenager, I have to really seriously go against what, what I thought, oh, that, that's pretty good. I, you know, I, I, can, I can go for that philosophy or that idea, and, and I constantly have to continue to you renew that out of my out of my attitudes and my thought process. There you go. There you go. <laughs> oh yeah. Nobody knows what it's like to be the bad man. Blue eyes, baby. Uh-huh. That's right. It's easier to get pulled down than to pull someone up to your level, right? Have you all seen that? We, I used to do this in youth groups sometimes. You'd put a, put a great big strong person up on a chair and, you know, a smaller person down, and they would try to lift them up, but the smaller person, you know, could pull the big burly guy down a lot easier than the strong person could lift someone up to their level. Paul reprimands the church there because they're getting distracted from the most important things and they're getting sucked into ideas and practices that aren't right. Uh, There are people there who don't have any idea what God wants and he's not proud to have to say it. He's saying, that's that's not right. You guys are, you're you're off base. Um, And much of it was probably directly related to that Greek philosophy they were believing about the resurrection and the separation of the physical and the spiritual natures. If you think wrongly, you're going to behave wrongly, aren't you? The Corinthians were convinced by the spiritual gifts that they were witnessing and exhibiting and and taking a part of uh, in their services that they had already entered into the heavenly spiritual existence so what they did with uh, their physical bodies until they were free of those prisons really didn't matter. That was, that was not reality, was it? Ideas have consequences. If you, if you think wrong, you're going to act wrongly. Uh, the thing is, the uh, promise of bodily resurrection is something that we can draw strength from almost daily. I mean, you know, why could martyrs be martyred? Because this doesn't matter. They're going to get another one. You know, um, how can we be comforted when somebody we love dies? You know, I've I've been to funerals of unsaved friends, and there's no hope there. There's nothing. There is no comfort in the fact that they're dead now. You know. Uh, not the case if you're a Christian. That bodily resurrection gives us the hope that beyond this, there's something else. And, and we don't have to despair when things here aren't going the way we think they should. 
future. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're all going to suffer. We have a hope. We have a reason to persevere through the suffering. If, if you don't, why bother? Give it up. End it, you know. Um, it's that hope or that firm con- conviction that this isn't all that there is, that there's more to life than what we're seeing here and now, uh, and we're going to be a part of it. And it's so much better than what we know now. That is is something that can carry us through when things are bad. Paul quoted Isaiah in uh, chapter 2 earlier in this letter. He says, What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived. The things that God has prepared for those who love him. That's what we get to look forward to. We can't even imagine how uh, how amazing it's going to be. Um. And, and Paul knows the idea of physical resurrection now that he's, you know, explained to them the faulty thoughts that they were having. Knows that that's going to bring up more questions uh, about the nature of that body, so he starts answering those right away, too. Um, verse 35, he says, But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish, he says. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be but just a seed. You do not plant the body that will be but just a seed. Punctuation is important as well. Uh, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he de- has determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh. Animals have another. Birds another and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor. The moon another and the stars another and stars differ from stars in splendor. You know, the easy answer when somebody asks, uh, you know, how how are the dead going to be raised? How's how's this new body going to work is... God's God. He, he can do anything. He created the entire universe out of nothing. He, he made man out of dust. You know, piecing him back together after he's dead and gone is really not going to be that big of an issue, is it? Uh, the resurrection doesn't, doesn't depend on us understanding how he does it. He, he's, you know, I don't understand how this computer works. Don't have a clue. But it does. Most of the time. <laughs> And when it doesn't, it's not pretty. That's right. Uh, Paul realizes that not everybody's going to accept this, but uh, he also says that the person who doesn't is a fool. And that word, you know, refers to someone without reason, someone that's senseless or stupid. He says, somebody bring this idiot some wheat kernels and remind this guy how they have to die in order to grow and produce a new life. Look at any kind of seed. I mean, uh, you know, like a pumpkin seed or a tomato seed. Uh, you know, what you put in the ground isn't what starts coming out, is it? It looks completely different. A seed doesn't grow a seed. A seed grows a plant, which produces more seeds. But he's just saying, you know, he's not specifically talking about the appearance of the resurrected bodies here uh, in terms of whether we'll be recognizable or not. We'll get to that here in a bit. But to his point is that the body that dies isn't going to be the same as the one that's resurrected. So we don't have to worry about, you know, oh, I, I want, you know, the same hair. You know. 
Uh, yes, that's right. Arthritis will stay. Don't need it. Exactly. Uh, notice the different categories of bodies that he mentioned in verse 39. Um, that's the same type of bodies mentioned in Genesis at the creation. You know, people, animals, birds, fish. It's in reverse order from, from the way they were brought up in Genesis. But uh, in this context, I think Paul is pointing out that each body is made for a different purpose or a different environment. Fish swim. You know, they're made for swimming in the water. Birds fly. People walk upright. Uh, each body suits its own purpose, and the resurrection bodies are going to suit the heavenly purpose. It's going to be made for heaven as opposed to made for, for this earth and, and this life right now. They'll be, uh, they'll be different. And he says earthly bodies pale in comparison to glorious heavenly bodies. It's a huge difference between the little pinlight flashlight that, uh, that you carry in your pocket, right, and one of those big search spotlights, you know, that they shine up in the sky to attract it to the bat signal lights. Big difference, right? Our new bodies, they're going to shine. It's going to be kind of cool. And Daniel, in uh, chapter 12, uh, verses 2 and 3, it says, Multitudes who slept in the dust of the earth, Interesting, he talks about them sleeping, just like uh, Paul does here. says, uh, they will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who were wise, Paul was just talking about the fools that, that weren't believing this, that, that couldn't see the simplicity of it. Those who were wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens. And those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Sure. Right, right. Because, because they're expecting that resurrection, right? Exactly. Uh, Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 13, Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Uh, you know, so what, remember when Moses saw God, when he was meeting face to what, what, was, what happened when he came back? His face was shining, right? Yeah. Uh, the fourth man in the fiery furnace. What did he look like? He was shining. That's right. Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration. He was shining like a beacon, right? Uh, this little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine, right? Somehow, our bodies are going to be different, which is you know, going to be pretty cool. We'll be transformed from our current caterpillar bodies to our heavenly butterfly bodies. Uh, you know, these that we've got here are going to last for, uh, you know, a few years here on earth. These new ones, they're going to last forever. Which is really the way we were intended to be in the first place, right? Adam and Eve never had to die. When, when they were in the garden, they could only not eat from the one tree, right? They were free to eat from the tree of life every single day. They were never going to have to die. Their sin is what brought the separation from God and death into the world. Of course, separation from God, you know, is death, really. In him, we live and move and have our being. That's, that's where the life is, is in God. Paul continues in verse uh, 42, so will, it be with the, so will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power, it is sown a natural body, and it is raised 
a spiritual body. You know, he continues to explain the two bodies are going to be different. Right now, we're perishable and weak. You know, I don't, obviously, not me, but, uh, you know, the rest of you are perishable and weak. I'm still young and stupid and think I'm invincible. And No, I got over that, although it tends to create it creep in every now and then. Uh, as we age, though, we see how perishable and weak we are more and more, don't we? Stuff starts not working right. Parts wear out. You know, stuff slows down, sag, fall out, you know. You're moving right along. We're gonna, no amount of supplements or Greek yogurt is going to keep any of that from happening, is it? But think about this. An apple, healthy food, that was the original source of death, wasn't it? Bring on the burritos. <laughs> All right, don't, don't take that as gospel, okay? That was just Greg speaking there. Um, you know, we think we're strong, at least, you know, in, in some sense anyway, but a tiny little single-celled microorganism that we can't even see can bring you to your knees. You know, drink the wrong water. You'll be miserable for a week. It can even kill you. You know, you could be killed by something that you can't even see. Every obituary is a reminder of how frail we really are. Every time I go to a funeral, it thinks, man, you know what? One of these days it could be me. And, and you know, it's okay because God's going to give every one of us a brand new, shiny, perfect, glorious, powerful, everlasting, strong, shiny body, right? But, you know, it, it does make you pause and think that, uh, boy, this, is, this definitely could happen. Have somebody find you in a ditch if you crash your motorcycle with no helmet some morning. That'll make you, that'll make you sit up and think, well, maybe I'm not as invincible as I thought I was. <laughs> no, it didn't. No, actually, that didn't. My wife did. <laughs> She after I did that, that was right after I first started working here, like that that first year that I was here. Um, and and she said afterwards, she says, "I know you're going to ride again, but please wear a helmet." And so I've worn a helmet almost every time. And the times that I haven't, I've gotten an okay beforehand <laughs> because I respect her enough. You know, I've been places, and, and guys I'm riding with are like, she's not around, she'll never know. But I respect her enough and, and want her to be able to trust me, and I love her enough that I won't do that uh, behind her back. What's that? Oh, yeah, yeah, the first time I'd wipe it. No, don't say that. Don't. <laughs> yeah, oh, and. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> no kidding. Get, get thee behind me, Kelly. <laughs> I'm just hacking on you. It's all right. So, you know, in, in, this, uh, in this section here, when Paul says that the new body will be a spiritual one, what does he mean? Is it like Casper the Friendly Ghost or, you know, Marley visiting Scrooge? Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, one, you know, one way of looking at that is that it's, it's subject to our spirit as opposed to consumed by our fleshly desires. Yeah. But you, you can still eat, yes. Right? Oh, yeah, he did it multiple times. So, yeah. 
Uh, you know, but when, when the disciples saw him after, uh, after he was raised, uh, they thought they were seeing a ghost. You know, well, they, of course, they thought they were seeing a ghost when he walked across the water, too. So they must have been a superstitious bunch, weren't they? But, uh, you know, when, when they saw him in, in Luke, he says, uh, you know, look at my hands and my feet. It's me. You, you know, touch me and see. You can, you can feel it. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones, as you see I have now. He didn't become a spirit, you know, a floating thing. He, he was raised with a spiritual body, uh, one that wasn't subject to the physical laws, obviously, because he could just appear in a locked room without opening any doors, you know. Sure. We're, we're supposed to be now, right? Yeah. Right. But, you know, somehow Jesus' body had been transformed. It wasn't the same. It was similar. They could recognize it. He could still show them the scars, but, uh, but it wasn't exactly the same. Do you think the reason the angel rolled away the stone in the tomb wasn't to let Jesus out, but to let the disciples in? Because if he could just appear and go anywhere he wanted and do whatever he wanted, he didn't need the stone rolled away, did he? But they did, to, to be able to see that he wasn't there anymore. Uh, how about this example of, of, of the transformation, the, the difference between the, uh, the, the two bodies? A geological example, coal turns into a diamond, right? When it's uh, subject to heat and pressure. One's dirty, black, you know, reviled by environmentalists worldwide. And uh, the other is clear and shiny and, you know, a girl's best friend, right? Um, it's the same stuff. They're both carbon. They both burn. A diamond will burn. You have to, you know, you have to work real hard at it, but a diamond will burn. Um one is derived from the other. It's a different form of the same thing. Spiritual buddies, you know, must be derived from this one, right? Otherwise, why would we have to have this one first? Hard to say, but there you go. Uh, continuing, Paul says, if there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. The first man was the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As with the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so are also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of earthly man, so shall we bear the image of heavenly man. Adam, it says, was merely a living human being in contrast to the last Adam, Jesus, who wasn't merely living, but he was life-giving. Uh, the heavenly is greater than the earthly. Um, but maybe to experience the heavenly body uh, or perhaps more to fully appreciate that, we have to live in this one. I don't know. You know, if you're given the nicest of something right off the bat, you think that's the way it always is, right? But if you have to work your way up to it, you, you appreciate you appreciate your nice car now compared to the one you got when you were 16, Right? Eight track? Still wish you had an eight track though, don't you? <laughs> That's right. Uh, 
So, you know, we know this earth suit that we're wearing isn't suitable. It's not proper attire for the wedding banquet and the heavenly reception. Uh, no matter how healthy, strong, and beautiful I may be, I'm not fit for heaven. It's hard to imagine, but it's the truth. Uh, verse 50 says, I declare you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the immortal with immortality. We've already learned that death and the burial of the earthly body isn't an unfortunate circumstance, as he explained, but a necessity. It's not something that we have to be afraid of and, and dread, but it's a graduation. It's, it's moving from the natural to the spiritual. But what about those who haven't fallen asleep? The ones that are still alive? You know what's going to happen to us when, uh, when Christ returns. We'll, we're still stuck in this old rag, right? Um, well, you know, Paul declares this is a mystery, but he's not talking about, uh, you know, Sherlock Holmes or Scooby and Shaggy. Um, in, you know, in the Bible terms, mystery usually refers to a new truth that hasn't previously been revealed. This is something that's true, but, you know, in the Old Testament, talked about the bodily resurrection, the second coming, that sort of thing. But uh, only now is this topic of what would happen to those still living at his return. Uh, started coming up. Right. Yeah, I see where you're going. Yeah, he's you know he's saying we're not all going to die. You know he's going to come back. You know and and the whole population of the entire earth isn't going to be dead when he comes back. You know. He may have been. We we do the same thing here, right? I mean, he he. You know, he could have been wrong. The word's wrong. <laughs> no, you're right. You know, the, the word is true that not everybody's going to be dead when he comes back. He, and, and I don't know, you know, I'm just, I'm just talking right now, but, you know, maybe he did, they, they, because many of them did believe that it was going to be right then during their lifetime. Yeah. Many of us believe that, you know, every generation since then has believed the same thing. Are we wrong? No, he is going to come back, and there are going to be believers here. Uh, does that does that mean that that's all false? No. So so you know, even if he did believe that it was going to happen before he died, that didn't, doesn't mean that anything he said about it is wrong. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So I don't know. 
All I know is that nobody had really had to worry about whether or not they were going to be alive when the second coming came because, you know, the first coming was just, just had happened, you know, within their lifetimes before. So, um, you know, not that not all believers are going to be dead at that second coming was kind of a new concept at this time. Uh, and Paul actually mentions the subject uh, in First Thessalonians, too. Uh, good. I'm cool with that. I Anything that I don't know, you know what I'm going to say? I don't know. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff like that. But, uh, but you know, whether he thought it was going to happen, you know, before he got to Corinth or not, you know, we don't know. But he says, you know, what happens? Those bodies are going to be changed too. Obviously, they have to be if flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, you know, when he's saying it's not going to be a molting or a prolonged metamorphosis, he's, uh, he thinks he says it's going to be a flash. It's going to be in a moment. That word uh, that is used there is where we get our word atom, which you know the Greeks believed that was the smallest particle that was possible. It was completely indivisible. You could not get smaller than the word that they were using right there. So you know, Paul's saying whatever, whenever it happens. That change is going to happen in the smallest fraction of a moment of a second, uh, instantaneously, as Pastor John is so fond of saying. I, I tell him instantly means the same thing, but instantaneously sounds, you know, quicker. I, yeah, exactly. It's like instantly times one. So, <laughs> uh, when's the last trumpet he's talking about? We're not going to get through this tonight, are we? I, I was just looking at the clock thinking, we're not going to do it. I'm turning into Pastor John. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, you know, some believe it's the seventh trumpet in Revelation. Uh, here's one of those things. I don't know. Uh, I, I'm not even going to try to get into eschatology here. Uh, I don't know enough about it. Um, I haven't studied it. And there's a couple of good reasons why. One, I don't care. And, and that's not, you know, that's not, I don't care what God has to say, but when the end comes, it, it's not, it doesn't matter to me when it comes or how it happens. Um, you know, if I'm today, right now, being obedient to what God wants me to be doing and planning on what God wants me to be planning, whatever happens, happens. And... If I'm obedient, I'm going to be doing what I'm supposed to be, and I don't have to worry about it. I'll get that shiny new Adonis stud body, you know, quicker than I can blink if it happens on the way home tonight. If it doesn't, I'm stuck with this, right? The other reason is I'm lazy. You know, I haven't studied it because I'm lazy. I could, but I got other stuff. I'm trying to trying to help my son with fourth grade math. <sighs> Some nights it doesn't go very well. I, I'm dreading fifth grade, let me tell you. You know, I did, but I don't remember it. <laughs> well, yeah, they, they do. They're, they're working into algebra and stuff early. It's just crazy. But, uh, you know, basically, uh, we have to live now, but we also have to keep an eye on the future. You know, if he comes tomorrow, we've got to be ready. 
but we've got to have a plan that, you know, we're following in case, uh, you know, we fall asleep before he does. There you go, yeah. Whenever it happens, we don't know. But when it does, verse 54 says, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death, as we've already seen and and talked about, isn't the end of the line. I know Kelly's a Lord of the Rings fan, uh, because he brought it up earlier. Woohoo! Anybody else? Anyone? Anyone? You know, yeah, precious. Um, But this, uh, I, I can't wait, December, December, the first Hobbit movie comes out. Sorry, am I showing my geekiness? But, uh, you know, this uh, uh, makes me think of the song that Bilbo sang when, when he's leaving the Shire after the birthday party where he leaves the ring with Frodo, you know, and he's taken off and he's leaving forever. It says, the road goes ever on and on down from the door where it began. Now far ahead the road is gone and I must follow if I can, pursuing it with eager feet until it joins some larger way where many paths and errands meet. And whither then? I cannot say. The thing is, this road that we're on goes somewhere that only Jesus has gone, at least so far. And, and all we have to do is follow him. The good thing, you know, that he's our guide and he's leading us as we continue along because it's, it's always good to go someplace new with somebody that's been there before, right? He's been there, done that. He's going to get us through it, and it's going to be fantastic. Um, praise God, through Jesus, we're not subject to the law of sin and death, right? He's just talking about it. Uh, you know, Paul says here that God literally keeps on giving us victory through Christ. Every moment that we live is Easter morning. There's no diminishing of his power to forgive past, present, or future sins. There's no diminishing of his ability to help us through whatever it is we're dealing with. It's, that's, that's what he's saying in, in that verse there. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Therefore, he says, and wraps up this entire section, because of all this stuff that we've talked about, do this. Stand firm. Don't be impatient or lazy. Don't be discouraged. Don't let problems get to you and cause you to waver. If uh, all this we've been reading is true, there's more to look forward to, right? We won't give up because we know that this right here isn't the end all. We know who we are, we know why we're here, and we know where we're headed. And that's good stuff to know. And that's what can allow us to continue to give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Because if we're being obedient, whatever we do, whatever sacrifice, it isn't for nothing. That's what he's saying there. Notice Paul also calls them, my dear brothers and sisters, even though, you know, they've been acting like idiots, forgetting a whole lot of what he had originally taught them and following questionable theology and not treating each other in love, he still loves them, right? That's nice. That's, that's the way it should be, I think. So that's the end of 15. We've got 15 minutes. Think we can get all the way through this in 15 minutes? 
You want to try real hard? Give it a best shot, right? Um, tell you what I'll do. I'll not read all the verses, and maybe that'll make it go a little quicker. Just kind of follow along and uh, see if you can figure out what I'm talking about. I'll, you know what? When I was in radio, they would give me a 60-second script for a 30-second commercial, and I told them, you've got to cut this down. You gotta, you know. And finally, I'd say, I'm just going to start dropping out every third word. And so I'm just going to read every third word here. And we'll... uh, so, you know, uh, Paul starts chapter 16, and basically, since we're giving of ourselves fully, the way he wrapped up uh, chapter 15, and whatever we do in obedience to God can't be in vain, and since his life and existence here isn't even close to all there is, uh, let's talk about money. And, uh, you know, Paul is giving them some guidelines here uh, for how they should give. Uh, he's told them, do the same thing I told the Galatians to do. He's being consistent, right? He's holding them both to the same standards. Uh, and he's saying that giving isn't optional. The, the word translated the same things that he told the Galatians is stronger than, uh, than an option. It's a mandatory thing. It's frequently translated command or order. He's saying, do the same things I ordered the Galatians to do. Uh, the, the Lord's people that he mentions that they were collecting for here uh, were more than likely the believers in Jerusalem. Uh, I guess uh, there was a famine going on, on top of uh, the fact that they were being persecuted, having economic sanctions against them. It made it uh, very difficult for the believers to work or, or you know, do anything other than the lowest menial, uh, bad-paying positions and stuff. So, you know, he's talking about taking up a collection and gathering this money so that we can help them survive. Uh, if... Uh, we're treating others with the love that we want to be treated with. We should care about their condition and help out, right? Uh, Paul's comments also, uh, you know, seem to say to us that giving is a high priority. He's talking about, you know, on the first day of, of every week. Uh, the implication here uh, is that uh, probably most people got paid weekly. And, uh, you know, when, when that happened, they should immediately set aside what they were going to give um, so that so that they wouldn't run out before uh, before it was time to give again. C.S. Lewis uh, in Mere Christianity wrote, "If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, they're too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot because our charitable expenditures exclude them." Good stuff. C.S. He was pretty smart. He I think he understood a lot. I uh, I haven't read extensively a lot of his stuff, but I'm working on it. It's uh, some deep stuff. This is actually, uh, this little section here is actually one of the first mentions uh, that evidently the Christians at that time were in the habit of getting together, not on the traditional Sabbath or the seventh day, but literally, uh, you know, according to one day from the Sabbath. They, that is how it is phrased in the original language. They were getting together on Sunday the day after the Sabbath uh, when, they, when they did that. I was raised going to church on Saturday because that's what you're supposed to do. My does it? Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Right. One, one day. Right. Right. 
which is is the Sunday. Yep. Uh, we we were Sabbath keeping, Pentecostal, Holy Spirit, uh, you know, pew jumping, uh, rolling on the floor, uh, clean eating. Um, no, it was just a independent Pentecostal, you know, just just the way it was. And and you know what? You're going to hell if you went to church on Sunday. Just the way it was. <laughs> silly, silly, silly Galatians. Yeah, and uh, you know it was always fun when I went back with long hair and earrings. You know it was, it was, it was pretty cool. But you know what? They loved me and they accepted me, even though I was you know obviously whacked out and going straight to hell. But there was were some fine people in those churches. They were. I learned a lot there. Uh, also, you know, continuing on here, it looks uh, looks to me when we read this like uh, Paul is uh, saying that giving is every believer's responsibility, not just the ones that can afford it, but it says every believer according, uh, you know, no exemptions for poor people or slaves or, or anyone else. Uh, it says that uh, it should be as the person may prosper, or in keeping with his income. Not everyone was required to give the same amount. Not obvi- obviously, not everyone can give the same amount, but he's saying everybody needs to give something because that, that's the love. That, that's, you care about them, so you want to help them if you can. Uh, Pastor John has discussed, discussed, discussed tithes and offerings before, so I'm not going to get into all that again. But uh, I remember... My, you know, we were in those whacked out churches. My dad's father was a pastor in a um, very small country. Oh, sure, now it's just escaped from Wesleyan Church. And uh, I remember my dad telling me about how his dad, raising five boys and a girl, you know, with a little small town time country, you know, pastor's salary always made sure that he would tithe everything. You know, when the church paid him, boom, instantly he gave some of it back into, you know, where it came from. No matter how little they had, they always had enough. It's a, it's a powerful, it stuck with me. You know, it's a powerful lesson. And, uh, and if we believe what we've just talked about in all of chapter 15, it shouldn't be an issue. That's, that's just the way it is. Giving is something we should do. If, when, how much, all that, just like everything else that we talk about is ultimately between each individual believer and God, we have to be responsible to be obedient to him for what he's leading us to do. Shouldn't, uh, shouldn't have to be any pressure, you know, that, uh, that's uh, trying to twist our arm. And, and that was something Paul was telling them to get this collection going, to start taking it up before he got there, so that when he got there, they didn't have to uh, beg for it. Uh, you know, Paul probably knew, you know, he's a big name. He's, uh, you know, he could come in and say, you know, we need money, and people just start throwing money. But he didn't want it to, uh, he didn't want it to have to go that route. He wanted them to do the right thing without that pressure of him being there asking for it. Um, so it would be coming from their heart rather than, uh, you know, their emotions where he's, where he's giving it a plea. 
Uh, and, and he also shows in there that they, uh, that they will be responsible and accountable with that money that they collect. Uh, he tells them, you know, I'm not going to take your money and run. You guys decide who's going to take it, you know, and, and who you'll trust to take and deliver this money. And, uh, you know, I might go back to Jerusalem with them if it works out for that to happen. But, you know, I don't want to make this all about me. You guys, you know, I want you to be taking care of it and doing it. Uh, the next series of verses, Paul talks about, uh, you know, how he's got some plans uh, going through Macedonia. Maybe he'll stay, you know, spend a winter, uh, you know, and going here and there. And uh, basically, you know, his plans are there, but he's flexible. Times and travel dates could change at any point in time. A flight could be canceled, you know, and he's stuck there, uh, you know, overnight. But uh, uh, that's right, good good skiing in Macedonia. But, uh, you know, theoretically, uh, he was being sure he was doing and going where and when God wanted him to go, right? And, and farther down uh, as we go into this chapter, he continues talking about uh, other people in ministry that, uh, that he's worked with, partners and what have you, and what they're doing ministry-wise and how they, too, are willing to go and do what God wants them to do. You mentioned several names as you go down through the list. Uh, even Paul wasn't alone, was he? He had, uh, he had people that, uh, that he worked alongside with, that helped him, that, uh, that he helped. Uh, we all need each other. Every single one of us needs each other. Uh, and, you know, and like Paul does for little names like Stephanus and Fortunatus and Acacius, uh, you know, and as well as big names like Timothy and Apollos that everybody recognizes, I, I think that we need to we need to make sure that we recognize the role that that others play, and and you know, make sure that they know that they're appreciated, and and talk them up to other people when uh, when it's appropriate and that sort of thing. Right in the middle of this whole section, in uh, let me get back up here in verse uh, in verse thirteen. And 14, right in the middle of where he's, he's talking about all these other people and all these things, you know, he get, makes a series of statements or exhortations all in the present tense imperative. You've got to love a, you know, good online, uh, you know, language, uh, you know, thing, don't you? Uh, but, uh, you know, that, that tense linguistically demands continuous action. He, he, he wasn't, in those two verses, giving pieces of good advice. Uh, they were phrased like mili- military metaphors and commands, encouraging resoluteness in the faith. He says, be on the alert, a warning to watch out for those who would bring about division. You know, they were trying, the church was being torn into all these different factions. Most of the problems they were dealing with was within the church. We don't have that problem these days, do we? No. Uh, We have to constantly be watching, though. He says, be alert. Uh, Make sure no one is leading us by word or action where we shouldn't be going. And uh, and we have to make sure that we aren't doing the same thing to others, too, don't we? Uh, We have to watch that we don't let anyone hinder our walk by their immaturity or abusive freedoms. And uh, we have to make sure that we don't cause anyone else to stumble in that same way. Stand firm in the faith, he says. That's a military image. Uh, that uh, was, you know, saying, hold your ground. Don't retreat before an enemy. Uh, he's telling them to hold 
to that which they know to be true and don't get caught up in the stuff that's not. Uh, be courageous. Act like men and be strong. Uh, you know, have courage in the face of danger. In, in that society, there are always people around who would at least ridicule and persecute people for their faith. Uh, you know, and the word here means to be strengthened. When it says be strong, and be strengthened. You can't strengthen yourself. It, it, you know, we need continual encouragement from each other to keep our strength up so that we can be courageous in the face of, you know, ridicule or persecution. Uh, and then finally, the last thing he says, what is it, in verse 14, do everything in love. He spends a whole chapter on this, doesn't he? And then he repeats it again. It's probably slightly important. Everything we do should be in the context of how we love God, and because of that, we love each other. Basically, he's just summing up maturity here, isn't he? Be mature, he's telling him. Or us. Whichever, you know, where, whatever shoe fits. Then he wraps it up, you know, uh, the end of the chapter, uh, by encouraging them even more. He tells them they're not alone. These other churches that, uh, that they're aware of, who Paul evidently has contact with, sends greetings to them. Uh, Aquila and Priscilla, who we've mentioned before in this class, uh, and the church that they're hosting in their home sends greetings. They had lived in Corinth previously, so the people probably, uh, you know, remembered them, uh, had a connection with their church. He also says to greet each other with a holy kiss. Brian, Brian turns his head, rolls his eyes. Uh, does that mean we need to start kissing? No. And, and you know what? Something that I did see uh, when I was uh, getting ready for this, culturally, that eh, wasn't necessarily embraced by the Greece, Greek culture at large. Uh, according to one source, it says they, they didn't like that too much. Uh, said that it could be a sign of uh, reconciliation in the Greek culture. Okay, I'll give you a kiss. That means we're cool and everything's fine. Uh, but uh, in the church there, it was a distinctive in that that was a public display, something that they did, and it kind of signified uh, a oneness of status, that, you know, one's not better than the other, that, uh, that they're mutual, and, and, and it uh, signified a a singularness of identity across racial, class, and gender lines. Paul probably felt that it was a good way to, uh, you know, help them combat the cliquishness and status-related nonsense they were getting into. You know, when your kids were getting along, did you ever, you know, make them hug and kiss or at least threaten to? You know, if you don't get along, you're going to, you know, probably kiss a few gypsies this summer, won't we? The proper, way, yeah. the proper yes. This side first. <laughs> <laughs> you got to know which way to go. I don't kiss too many people here. I do hug a lot of people, you know, and it's, uh, I think it's the same thing. It's a show of affection. Somebody that you're close to, you just come and, and you show them that affection. Man, I love you. And, uh, you know, then he says, you know, I'm right, I write with my own hand. Uh, it probably means that, uh, as usual up to this point, he's been dictating Someone else has been writing it down for him. Fairly common. Uh, and then at the end, he takes up the pen. He adds a quick note and a signature. But uh, he says, if anyone does not love the Lord, let that be person be cursed. It's like, whoa, you know, where'd this come from? Presumably, he's still addressing the believers in the church, right? 
It's not just all of a sudden talking about sinners. Why does he want them to be cursed? Uh, there's similar, similar warnings and, and, and statements in Second Thessalonians. It said, take special note of anyone who does not obey our instructions in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. Uh, also in Titus, he says, warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. Uh, you may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. More than likely, the same sort of thing. He's saying, you know, exclude anybody who absolutely refuses to uh, to abide by what you know that uh, that is right, that what we've been talking about. Uh, and Pastor John talked about that a little bit earlier in this class as well. Then he... Uh, you know, right, right following that, he says basically the opposite. You know, come Lord or Maranatha, uh, you know, for everyone else who does love and obey God. You know, this is, the, you know, this is it. This is where it's at. He finishes, uh, affirms his love for them again, despite all the stuff he's having to take them to task over. And, uh, you know, discipline, him getting on them isn't because they were hated. It's because he did love them and he wanted them to, to do the right things and to be right. That was a lot of talking, wasn't it? But I made it through my two chapters, Pastor John. Let's see what you do next week when you get back, huh? Thanks for putting up with me. Have a wonderful rest of the week. Just makes me want to cry. <laughs>